This is the Center for Strategic and International Studies weekly podcast, Smart Women, Smart Power. It's made possible by Citigroup. Here's your host, Nina Easton, senior editor and Washington columnist, Fortune Magazine, chair, Fortune Most Powerful Women International, and senior associate at CSIS. Welcome to our latest episode of Smart Women, Smart Power, coming to you from the Washington, D.C. headquarters of CSIS. This is Nina Easton. You know, one thing we've learned looking around the globe this past century is that a vibrant and open media goes hand in hand with peaceful, stable, prosperous societies. But today, reporters trying to do their jobs are under attack more than ever. In just the past couple months, we've witnessed ISIS's gruesome beheading of American journalists James Foley and Stephen Saltloff, and the Burmese military's shooting of freelancer Pargi, who may have been tortured as well. This year alone, 42 journalists have been killed, many of them targeted because of their determination to report the news. With us today, Jeannie Burgo is president and CEO of Internews, which works to help build a local media presence in some of the toughest places in the world. Welcome, Jeannie. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, I should warn our listeners that Jeannie is right off of a plane from London. Uh, She was actually in South Sudan, where violence has been raging over the past year. Jeannie, tell us what you saw there. Um, I I was both encouraged and a little bit uh, taken aback by what's happening in South Sudan. Encouraged because there's just a lot of vibrant movement in the media sector. The government just published some new media laws that in theory should help um, support freedom of expression. There's a lot of controversy around them. There's lots of interesting media advocacy groups, lots of innovation and and brand new nation, supposed to be nationwide uh, media radio station called iMedia that's going off and doing great guns and uh, producing uh, many, many hours of excellent programming every day. Lots of community radio stations that are opening up. But on the other side, there's a lot of fear, a lot of pressure, though the the feeling that the war could come back. It's now the dry season, and so the fighting is starting. And you really feel the tension on the streets there and the fear with journalists in particular because even reporting very simple humanitarian issues is viewed as a, as a threat if you're if you're sort of reporting to the wrong side. And so it was just this very interesting and unusual for me mix of both amazing infrastructure being built and yet this really difficult pressure that's that's starting to come down. You mentioned earlier you saw some hilarious things there. Like what? Well, we have I shouldn't call it hilarious because my colleagues would probably <laughs> appreciate that. But we have a, we we like to think of ourselves as working in a really innovative space. I mean, media is changing wildly around the world, and when you think about media innovation, you often think about using mobile phones to do something super creative or apps and things like that. Well, in South Sudan, we have a really particular issue about trying to reach the IDP population. There's over 2 million IDPs across South Sudan after the violence that broke out last year, late last year. And the IDP being? At the internally displaced people, um, people that have fled violence, and, 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 and many of them sought refuge within UN compounds, literally flooding UN compounds. And so they have tens of thousands of people living in makeshift Make makeshift huts outside of UN compounds, and these people are afraid of everything right outside. I mean, they, they went there for protection from uh, the, the presidential forces, and so the media has to whatever information we try to provide these people can only stay in this compound because it would be viewed very controversially outside of it. So rather than what we normally do is sort of 
build a radio station and sort of broadcast news and information in and to surrounding communities. But we had to find a way to keep broadcast media very, very local. And so we created something called Boda Boda Talk Talk. <laughs> it's quite literally an, uh, uh, a microphone put on top of a four-wheel drive little bicycle thing, uh -huh. and it runs around the camp, and it stops in central, like a watering post here, a little market here, and it plays a 30-minute news program. They record it in a studio right outside of the camps, and they go in and they play it at, at strategic parts, um, strategic stops within the camp, so they can do the news program, and it stays exclusively within the camp, so it's news and information for the camps, produced by camp members, and it, and it keeps everyone safe, but they also get information that well, they have simply no access to otherwise. So the Boda Boda Talk Talks, I was able to see five or six of these little bikes getting ready to go out and distribute their news. They're brightly colored, and they play music as they drive to the camp, so the kids are chasing behind them, and it was just a wonderful innovation. It reminds you that innovation isn't always sort of more high-tech. Sometimes it's going super low-tech. Sometimes it's not Twitter. Um, now, now, South Sudan is not ground zero for Ebola, but areas, um, countries not so far away are, um, and you're active in uh, helping reporters on the ground, local reporters, uh, cover the Ebola crisis. Right. Tell us about that. We're working in Guinea, Liberia, and a little bit in Sierra Leone, and we're really, it was a real struggle for us as an organization, because we worked in a lot of conflict zones. We worked in, worked in a lot of humanitarian crisis situation, but Ebola was uniquely different. I mean, I think the fear that we all feel about Ebola even as an international organization, we felt that same fear, too, in deploying people and trying to support partners. But we spent a lot of time talking about it and thinking about it, and we realized, to me, there's only two ways to solve this. You, know, you need to get excellent medical care there, and people need information. And the, the, the urgency of getting quality, trusted information to people is so great that we, we really have to do this. We have to be, be, be there and be happy helping support our partners. We work with radio stations in these countries. Literacy is very, very low. I think there's only 30% literacy, um, adult literacy in Guinea. Uh, women tend to be the most vulnerable because they're caregivers, and so you really want to be able to reach women in these communities with good quality information. And it's a, it's a big, information, uh, confusing information space there right now. There's lots of international organizations broadcasting messages saying call here, billboards saying different things, lots of pamphlets that people can't read. And so to get cut through that with trusted voices that people know and have heard before, before the crisis came, so that they can trust the information they're hearing, that's what our, our role is. is well, what were the myths that they had to, to well, combat? I think you've probably read about them, heard about them, there are lots of myths about sort of how you capture it. And in fact, there was a devastating turn of events in September, you may have read about, where a community turned on a, 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 a group of health workers and journalists. Mm -hmm. They went to a village outside of one of the main um, uh, population centers, and they turned on them for fear that they were bringing the virus into that, that mm -hmm. community. And so it's incredibly dangerous at some level, but on the other hand, the community desperately needs people to be talking to them, again, in their own languages, with trusted voices, so that they feel like they, they can believe and understand the information. We have a partner in Liberia uh, who is doing amazing work, literally going door to door when, his, when he can't get radio programming to, to collect some information, create radio packages, but also just to talk to people. He's going door to door, and one, one group of people that he's really concerned with are the survivors, the people that have recovered from the disease, hmm. because people are don't are afraid of them and they won't communicate with them. And so we're doing everything we can to reach that community as well. And we're we're literally distributing radios to them. We're helping them get 
text messages in and out so that people will communicate with them because people are so afraid of survivors. They just don't trust that they can't get sick from them. And so that's a, a particular target that, that we're trying to reach right now. What kind of person wants to be a reporter reporting on that on the ground? What kind of well, I mean, all of the late radio stations that were there before are there now and, and sort of see it as their responsibility mm -hmm. to be reporting on this. I mean, journalists tend not to run away from a disaster, but mm -hmm. they tend to run into the, as you mm -hmm. very right. well know. Um, so we're finding, uh, you, you know, just it, it's your average reporter is out there heroically doing their work. Now, you go way back on, on this issue of, um, of supporting the media in, in very difficult places. You started with Inner News in Russia in the 1990s when the Chechnya War had started, but no one was talking about it. So tell us about that time. Yeah, it, was a, it was an amazing time in Russia. This is, I lived there from 1993 to 1996. And so, you know, a dramatic democratic transition happening, first parliament, first uh, uh, contested parliamentary elections, first contested presidential elections. But at the same time, uh, Yeltsin started the first Chechen war. And many of us who were living in Moscow at the time were so frustrated by the lack of attention to what was happening. You know, a bunch of good things, but a lot of really, really bad things happening uh, down in, in, in and around Chechnya. So a small TV station in Dagestan that Internews had trained uh, ended up filming body bags, uh, showing the Russian soldiers that were actually dying in Chechnya. And this production was picked up by a Moscow station. And when a Moscow station picks something up, that means it basically goes nationwide. And for the first time ever, people in Moscow and across the country saw that Russians were dying in this war. And it started uh, the peace movements, the first peace movements happening against the first Chechen war. And that captured for me the power of what we do and why we do it. And, and to this day is sort of one of the, it gives me chills to remember about what, what we're doing and why. And we all know, of course, uh, the, the role of social media and some recent revolutions. But talk about uh, other examples of just basic television and radio actually altering the course of events. Yeah, I'll fast forward uh, about a decade. And I might excuse me if I get some of the details wrong, but this story is just so wonderful that I, I have to tell it. In, during the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, and we had been working in Ukraine for a number of years, uh, when the demonstrations first broke out in the, in the Central Square, a lot of our, even our media partners weren't covering it effectively. They were afraid, I mean, to cover it effectively and to talk about the, the numbers that were on the streets and to sort of really cover what was happening, really covering the, the, the magnitude of those protests. And finally, one day, I don't remember which station it was, but they were, they uh, often on Russian television, television in the former Soviet Union, you'll have a sign language person uh, presenting along with the news. And the sign language woman with that newscast got so frustrated with what the reporter was saying, what the news presenter was saying, that she started signing and saying, this isn't true. This is all, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of people on the square. What this person is saying isn't true at all. And her, so she's in the back signing. She's signing over here as, as this person is That's reading amazing. the news. And, and she tells the truth with the sign language. It gets picked up, of course, immediately because it comes quite like a, quite a story. Yeah. And journalists, a lot of journalists felt almost ashamed and sort of felt emboldened by her courage, a little ashamed at their behavior and they started reporting the Orange Revolution correctly. That's amazing. Now, um, you have made the point in the past um, that social media has been incredibly important in the last couple of years, but it can only take events so far and then traditional media kicks in. Yeah, it's a, we always say that the, the, it's the, the blend of the two that is the most powerful, and they, the classic example through the Arab Spring being you know, that protests were organized using social media, certainly people coming online and saying, let's meet here. But the, but the, the revolutions moved between countries because of um, the, the satellite, the international satellite televisions that picked up the protest and broadcast them around the region. And suddenly, 
ideas for protests started popping up in many other countries. So it's, it's really that combination of social media plus traditional media that you can get some of the, the biggest, most dramatic impact and change. And you say that sometimes social media isn't for the good. Sometimes it doesn't have a beneficial effect. Well, I think that it can sometimes have a, a negative effect that perhaps people weren't expecting. Uh, we're seeing that right now in, in, in Burma, Myanmar, where it's a really exciting place in our business because of the media freedoms that have been exploding and there's all sorts of our partners who had been working on the outside sort of uh, hoping someday to report from inside Burma and Myanmar are now inside and they're setting up their own, they all want to set up daily newspapers which we keep telling them don't do a daily newspaper, think about your online presence but they're so <laughs> thrilled to be inside they want to do these daily yeah. newspapers. But where uh, there's very little internet penetration um, in Myanmar, but where it is happening, people are on Facebook. They love Facebook. People love Facebook all over the world. It's, it's one of the most popular media, certainly. But the news outlets themselves, they don't, they, they, they've set up their sites on Facebook as well. So they don't have their own websites. They use Facebook as sort of their, their, their publicizing about their news outlets. And what happens is in the comment streams on articles and different things that it very, very quickly goes into hate speech. And so the worst, worst violations of hate speech are all across the country are happening on Facebook. And we tell our news partners, like, you, you have to stop that. It's ruining your brand. You, you have to control it. You need to get your own websites. Don't put all of your information on Facebook. You need to have control your message and your brand. But it is it is the the worst source of hate speech. What happening. kind of hate speech directed it, at I mean, the ethnic minorities? Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you can imagine what what uh, just the, the the tensions between uh, the minority populations, and it's um it's it's ugly. It's bad. Now, as I noted earlier, I mean it's it's a pretty dangerous time to be a journalist. What are the top most dangerous places? Would you say? Well, they, d depending on how, how you're counting, um, uh, certainly there's, there's uh, several causes of, of dang dangers against, for journalists. One, I mean, just the, the increase in violence all around, right? Ukraine is up there. I think five journalists have died, I think, in the past year in Ukraine. Syria's died targeted or in There combat? it was more because of conflict. In Syria, Syria is the number one, the most dangerous place right now for journalists to practice. And I think 60 journalists have died in the past year, six of them were directly targeted for their profession. So journalists face both the danger of reporting on a war and the danger of the pressure against their profession. And in Syria, you're seeing both of those things happen. And other countries where it's particularly dangerous right now? Syria, Ukraine, Iraq, not surprisingly, the West Bank and Gaza, Pakistan. The Philippines is a country that, that there's, a, there's a whole issue of impunity as well. I think over the last 10 years, 360 journalists have been killed around the world. This is according to the, uh, the Committee to Protect Journalists, and 90% of those are not, the cases aren't solved. They just sort of languish. And, and wow. Nothing, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a, it means, you know, that it's, it's a very dangerous condoned. profession, and it's condoned, and, and that's, that makes it all the worse. Speaking of that, I mean, let's talk about Russia, where we've had some notorious murders of journalists. Uh, how are things there now? Well, I think the murders have gone down probably because the, the, the clampdown on media has been so extreme. I mean, there's very mm -hmm. few independent voices there. Again, the place that was my inspiration for mm -hmm. this work um, has turned around quite dramatically over the last few years. In fact, just recently, a new media law is passing where they're restricting foreign ownership of local media outlets. The broadcast media was mostly controlled by the state, but there's a lot of independent magazines and journals, and even that's going to crack down. Even things like Vogue magazine, I mean, could, could be shutting down because of these foreign ownership rules. There are very few independent voices left in Russia, which means there's uh, less reason to, to crack down on journalists. If you want to get the real story of what's going on in the Ukraine, for example, because you know you're not getting it from state media, how 
do you do that? Is that are, are there avenues to get that well, kind of information? The media is amazing and lively, and they have an extraordinary um, uh, lots of media watchdogs. Lots of groups. It's a very healthy media sector in Ukraine. The Crimea is is another story, and and certainly the contested areas in eastern Ukraine, because the me media outlets that were there, that were vibrant, lively media outlets, have all been shut down and are being reopened by state-run broadcasters. There are still online people, online uh, uh, content producers who are getting the message out, but it's pretty difficult actually to know what's going on inside there because it's all been shut down. If you're in Moscow, how is it to get information about the Ukraine? You would have to be online or look at satellites. And how open is online? It's still more open than other parts of the media, and there's still some satellite, but it's the information wars are, are, are serious, and, and there's uh, been, there's lots of, you know, point counterpoint mythologies about what's going on and, and that, um, that make it really difficult, actually. It's difficult to sort through what's true and what's not true. What about China? Uh, of course, I, I'm just back from uh, China and uh, uh, in Beijing. If you wanted to find out about what happened in 1989 on Tiananmen Square uh, and on the internet, you would find nothing. Uh, talk about the press repression there. Most of it, I mean, you just summed it up right there. I mean, there's there's a censorship against some very specific uh, concepts and ideas and conversations. There's an explosion of media in China. There's an amazing uh, amount of news and information at the local level on corruption, on environmental issues that you, you would be shocked at how amazing it is. You know, uh, shocked at what you can read about, hear about, talk about in a very lively press inside of China. Critical of the government about environmental policies, for example, and correct? Call, and calling government officials on those things, but there are certain topics that are too sensitive, and then there's also the Great Firewall sort of for outside news. So inside of China, certain topics, very lively, effective coverage, certain topics that are out of, uh, that are off the... And we should add to that the Hong Kong protests are yeah. not covered in yeah. mainland yeah. China. Yeah. Um, what about you? One of the things that you do is go in and, and of course, and train journalists. Um, tell us about your efforts in Afghanistan. Yeah, Afghanistan is a really interesting case because I think it captures most beautifully sort of the full range of the type of work we do. We went into Afghanistan literally in December 2001, sort of right after the, the mm -hmm. fall of the Taliban then. We sent people in because we knew that there was going to be an extraordinary opportunity there, a place that is com was completely dark. I mean, you know, almost no media anywhere in the country and suddenly an open government. And at the time, it was very open. You could go walk around the streets and, and people were, you know, welcoming the international community mm -hmm. uh, uh, to, to help transform this society. And it is one of, in, even in South Asia, one of the most open presses to this day. It's one of the success stories of Afghanistan's development over the last decade, and, um, 12, 13 years. And the media sector remains incredibly vibrant and, and really interesting. We've been there the entire time. We've done a lot of different work. We sort of set up a network of community-owned, community-run radio stations all across the country in places that never had their own radio. I think we're up to 67 community stations that we work with uh, around the region. They cover about 14 million people, and every, every province of Afghanistan has a local community-owned, community-run radio station that's producing local news by local community wow. members in, in, their, in their own language. And they love, I mean, people love it. Radio's fun. I mean, we all love radio, yeah. too. We set up a, a production house called Salamatandar, which is Hello Countrymen. It, we like to call it the NPR of Afghanistan. Uh -huh. They do a central production house, lots of really interesting programming on women's issues and youth issues and farm talk and, and fix-it sort of uh, shows and radio programs about sort of how... 
uh, governments are being held accountable for their promises in local communities. So all sorts of interesting programming that's sent out to this network, and it's similar to the NPR structure, um, sent out to this network of radio stations. We also have looked at sort of the media, internet, and telecommunications law. There's a big digital transition happening in Afghanistan. We've been advising the government on how to navigate their digital transition the way we did in, in this country about five years ago. So journalism schools, media training institutes, sort of the, the full array of support institutions necessary to keep a healthy flow of talent in, mm -hmm. in the media sector. Lot, television is exploding there. There's lots of wonderful commercial. Tolo TV is one of the most famous TV stations, you know, sort of in South Asia. So it's it's amazing. It's amazing what's possible. What is that having any impact on uh, the progress of women in Afghanistan? It's been extraordinary. In, in the network of 67 stations that I was talking about, five of them are owned and run by women. Women, hmm. particularly with radio, because you, there's not a visual image, uh, so radio is a very powerful tool for women to be able to present the news and talk about um, uh, issues in their communities, but also be news presenters. And as they do that, they become symbols. They become you know role models for mm -hmm. other young women in the community. But it's it's a uh, radio in particular, but also online is a really powerful media for women in Afghanistan. We've done a wonderful project called the Afghan Youth Voices Festival, which uh, encourages over the course of a year, really, up leading up to a big celebration in, in August, where we ask young people all around the country to engage in, in media in the most traditional sense, which can be graffiti, it can be you know, podcasts, mm -hmm. it can be poetry, which is very, very popular there. We had one young woman who did a photography project, and she did it. It was called Behind the Veil, and she took all of her photos from behind the veil of her burqa, sort of images on the streets, the most beautiful photos. Interesting. It was absolutely fantastic. And she won one of the awards, as did one of the, another woman won one of the Youth Festival Awards for her poetry as well. So we're seeing lots of good things in the media sector in Afghanistan. Now, are journalists being targeted by the Taliban or other extremists in Afghanistan? Uh, radio stations have been destroyed, and radio stations are then rebuilt by their communities because they're so important and they're protected by their communities. Yes, it is a dangerous profession for women. Women have been under pressure, threatened. You know, certainly I know that families are concerned when their young daughters or wives go in and, and into this profession because it is considered very, very modern to do it and there's a lot of pressure. So speaking of modern, I mean, the, the idea of a First Amendment, um, the embracing of a free press, it's a very Western and, and in fact a very American um, sensibility and culture. Is that a hard, um, a hard uh, case to make uh, in in some of these countries? Uh, is it hard to get the the appreciation levels uh, to where we have them about a free press? The trends have changed a lot over the last few decades that Internews has been working in this space. I mean, certainly when we started working with in international engagement was the fall of the Berlin Wall and the opening up of the Soviet Union. And there was an explosion of freedoms, as we all know, around the world and, and, and in that region. And media was viewed as one of the exciting new tools and institutions of these modern new societies that people were very, very excited to be building. And that was infectious. I mean, it moved to other places, the fall of Suharto, or Suharto's Indonesia. There, we saw great liberalizing of media across Asia as well, as well as Africa. The last five years, the last decade, we've certainly seen that turning around. I think there's sort of two really, different Really? In levels. what sense? Uh, things are getting worse for the press. Well, I think there's there's 
places, because of the, the rise of violent conflict that we're seeing this year in particular, when you have sort of something like Ukraine on the list of one of the most dangerous places to be a journalist, you wouldn't have seen that before on these lists. So violent conflict is certainly part of it, but just, a, I think, a recognition of the power of media and sort of the, the, the desire to clamp down, to censor, to shut, shut, shut voices. And so this is, I think, the lowest, the, the worst in a decade when it comes to press freedom. Only one in seven people in the world live in a society that's called, you know, that's it's characterized by a free press. That's according to that's Freedom astonishing. House. That's astonishing. Yeah, that's an astonishing it's, number. It's, One in seven yeah. people live in a society with press freedoms. Yeah, we've got a long road ahead of us. And does social media combat that in any way? Are you taking it, into account social media when you look it is, at that yes, number? Yeah, yes, yes, definitely. Uh, these the, Those statistics are from Freedom House, and they have very sort of elaborate sort of ways that they characterize different types of media. Social media certainly is opening up lots of new ways to communicate, and again, with positive and negative, as we've already talked about. And, and certainly mobile technologies, online presence is opening up many more places to go and try, but it's pretty easy to also shut those things down as well. And so if a regime really wants to shut, shut voices down, they can, even, even on social media. But it's becoming harder. Well, that's the exciting part. And there's lots of different ways. High-tech innovations and low-tech innovations that can sort of keep It's harder to going. shut it down. Yeah. So that's, that's encouraging. And, and we certainly are still optimistic. When you see a place like Burma, when they have the chance, they really do try to open up. And when, when people have a chance to have freedom of expression, it's not it isn't really an American value. It is an international value. And I think people cherish it and will fight for it. And we're seeing that all over the world, too. And yet, dark times. Mm, yeah. And again, why do you think that is? I think the world just got, has become a much more complicated place. <laughs> Rise of repressive right. regimes. Repressive um, regimes, lots of violent conflict. People, you know, when, when you're facing violent conflict, you're, what you want to do is shut down any voices that could sort of undermine what you're trying to do. And so, you know, when you're in a war situation, free, freedom of expression is really hard when you're in a conflict. So I like to end this uh, program with predictions. What is your prediction moving forward uh, for press freedom around the world? Where do you think this is heading? Because I am an optimist, okay. <laughs> I honestly think we've hit a low and it is going to try. I just feel like the power and creativity that people engaged in media around the world bring to that space is just going to push back harder and harder. And I, I do think we've hit a, a definite low this year with all the conflict going around the world. But the, the media and information is part of the solution. And, and I, I think we're going to see a, a brighter path in the coming years. Jeannie Burgo, President and CEO of Internews, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. This was very fun. Thank you for listening. For more information, go to CSIS.org and subscribe to our podcasts.